Welcome to C3 Church Central Coast Sermon Cast. We pray that you'll be inspired and impacted by this message and trust that you're better equipped to live your best life. by how 
how well the individual has been trained and prepared for battle. And that's exactly what we're doing. We're being trained and prepared for battle through these series of messages that we're discussing. And part of that training is to know your enemy. Now, last week I mentioned that as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of the devil. We, we shouldn't be running around retreating from him or hiding out, hoping just to survive until Jesus comes home, to, comes back, you know, to, to rescue us and take us home to heaven. Instead, we should be confident in life. I talked about that last week. We should be marching forward in life with Jesus. We should be empowered and anointed by the Holy Spirit. We can be resisting the devil, binding up the strong man, overcoming the devil, defeating the devil, yeah? But in order to win, we still need to know what we're fighting for, who we're fighting against, and what kind of strategies our enemy uses to have a go at us. And that's what we want to talk about today, these three things. First of all, let's think about who our enemy is. You know, the word Satan uh, is a Hebrew word, means the adversary. And that's come to be used in, uh, in our uh, language as the, the proper name for this angelic being. He tries to destroy people because of his hatred of God. He's also called the devil, which comes from uh, a Greek word meaning false accuser. He loves to do that. Uh, now, the Bible doesn't tell us a real lot about Satan or the devil because the focus in the Bible is on God and, and on his redemptive plan for mankind to be reconciled to God. But we can, through a number of different passages, understand a few things about the devil. He was created by God. Uh, so he's not equal with God. He was created as an angelic being along with all the other angels. He was originally in a very special position in heaven, one of only three archangels, it seems. And he was esteemed for his good looks. He's been compared in one scripture to beautiful jewels. And there are one or two verses that suggest that he may have been in charge of all the music of heaven. Uh, but he became proud. Isaiah 14 verse 13 says this about him. You said in your heart, to the devil, you, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And so that's pretty proud pitching yourself up there with God. And so the same passage tells us that he was cast out of heaven as a result. And then another passage in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, suggests that a third of the angels was cast out of heaven along with him. And they are now known as what, what we know as demons. Uh, and all this happened before the creation of the world. But of course, when God created mankind, Satan knew that his best way of fighting back against God was to get at God's highest creation, human God. And, uh, and that's why you, when you read the Bible, you only get into a couple of chapters, about the third chapter, and there you see Satan in the form of a serpent coming to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And his work has continued ever since. Uh, the good news is that, you know, um, you can go to the back of the book to find out what happens to the devil, you know, and you a bit cheeky and you want to find out the end of the story, you can do that. And there in the book of Revelation, it says at the end of the time, Jesus is going to come back, he's going to judge the world, and Satan will be thrown into an eternal lake of fire, and he'll never again be able to attack God's people. 
that's a little about our enemy. What about his strategies? What is he doing to try and attack you and, and people? Well, as we read earlier, Ephesians 6 verse 11 says, we need to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Greek word used there for schemes is a word called methodia. So you can guess that we obviously get the word method from that Greek word. So the devil has methods. He has schemes. He has strategies. He's clever. And uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, We are not ignorant of his devices. In other words, Paul assumes that believers will be aware of the devil's devices or purposes or strategies of war, that we should be aware of what he's doing, not being ignorant. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So the question is, are you alert to his strategies? Are you aware of his devices? Do you understand how your enemy is attempting to defeat you? Now remember, he's not equal with God. He's not stronger than God. He can't steal you back into his kingdom by force. He can't even make you sin. But but there's plenty that he can do. Uh, he He can whisper into your mind thoughts and attitudes that are unhealthy. Uh, he can cast doubt on God's word. The Bible says, when Jesus tells that parable about the seed, the seed, God's word, you know, it can be plucked straight away. Um, and, and the devil, it says, the, the enemy comes and steals it straight away. So you can read God's word. You can hear God speaking into your heart. You can be, have someone sharing something that will help you get closer to God. But immediately the devil wants to steal that thought away, that seed that could do really well be planted in your heart. Something can be taken. The doubt can be cast on it and it's immediately taken and shaken out of your heart. The devil can distort the message of the gospel with false teaching. And sadly, there's a whole bunch of cults uh, out there that have got the roots of their message in the Bible, in a commonly accepted Christian realm, and then off they go with someone who's had a revelation, Joseph Smith, you know, the founder of the Mormons, and he had, you know, the book of Moroni and, and, you know, the claims of gold glasses that he lost later, which we think could interpret, and, you know, and people go off with some unusual teachings. And that's the devil's work, to distort the true basic message of the gospel. And the devil can blind the minds of people so they can't even see who Jesus really is. He can offer occult alternatives for people interested in spiritual things. You know, we're hearing words of prophecy. Joe says, oh, well, I heard everyone talking about my message before I got up this morning. You know, that's a pure, clean, godly way of spiritual things working, words of prophecy, healing, and wonderful good things. But there's a dark side that people can get interested in, going on ghost pillars or Eastern mysticism and things like this. The devil will also bring persecution to believers. He'll attack people with sickness, with other troubles in life. He'll encourage pride, division, selfishness, anything else that will hinder God's people from getting along together or getting along with the work of God. He'll tempt people to sin. He'll want people to disobey God in all kinds of ways and and offer them uh, a temptation that 
makes the effects of sin look much better than they really will be. Right? He'll even tempt you individually because he'll get to know you personally. He'll figure out what is most likely to cause you to sin and that may not be what would affect the person next to you. And of course he accuses us. The Bible says he's the accuser of the brethren. He wants to get people to live with condemnation, feeling accused, living with guilt. And he's also got an army of de- demons helping, working with him. And they are hell-bent, literally, on uh, getting you to give up on following Jesus. Uh, so he's busy. Now, specifically, I want you to look with me at one of the major methods of the uh, devil's attacks that he employs, and that is deception. To deceive someone means to make them believe a lie. And in John chapter 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. He, he, he loves to get people to believe something uh, that isn't true. And he wants people to not believe things that are true. And sometimes he doesn't have to work very hard at this because, sadly, our hearts are not always willing to believe the truth, especially if it's about us, especially if it's about something we've done wrong. In fact, Jeremiah says in chapter 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's a great attendant church this morning. What a encouraging scripture that is. Hey, I'm talking about you, your heart, deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? He's like, oh, God, it's like, you know, what a wretched man I am, Paul writes. Now, what is going on? My heart, ah, I want to do what I can't do and I don't do what I wish I could do. And, ah, we cry out. That's why we need to cry out. That's why we need the work of sanctification, the Holy Spirit helping us to overcome sin, to teach us the ways of Christ, to help us become more like Christ, leading us into truth, working on our hearts. We've also got the Word of God, which is a a foundation, a a beacon of truth in a world of lies. And so we can let that speak into our heart. Of course, we should have good godly people around us and also... Help us know what is true. So we don't just believe what we want to believe. You know, oh, I'm thinking this, I really feel this, I'm really excited about this, and, and that therefore it must be God. Well, not necessarily. And so we need other people to help us. And we did a series a while ago on hearing from God. And he speaks to us through other people. Um, and so our heart can be very easily persuaded into believing a lie that the devil will bring along. And this was part of the problem, the last part of the problem, of what happened in the Garden of Eden. Eden. Um, let me ask you a question. What did Satan do in the Garden of Eden? Well, he came along as a serpent. And then, in a word, what would you think? What would you say? What did he do? Out of the, he, he tempted is the, is the word that we often think of. He, he, but when you read that, technically, he didn't really tempt Adam and Eve. By, by convincing them of the benefits of eating the forbidden fruit. He didn't say, this is going to be awesome, this will do this. What he, what, what he actually did was simply lie about what God had said. When you read Genesis chapter 3, you'll see, you know, he really just deceived them into thinking that what God had said was not true. And the temptation was there. It, it then just says, it says in verse 4, his words were, if you eat the fruit, you will not die. Well, that, that, that was a lie, because on the day they had it, that's when death came into the world. He said, when you eat it, you will be like God. And that just created the foundation for the temptation. And the, but the temptation... 
question was, uh, it, it, the next verse just says, but each saw the friend, saw that it was good to eat, it was appealing, and again, the heart was willing to believe a lie, and the temptation was wrapped up, but the core message that the devil brought was just a, a lie, a distortion of the truth. And when we believe a lie, it's terribly powerful, because we can end up with what the Bible calls, calls strongholds in our mind. Uh, you know, you keep believing a lie, you'll build up a stronghold. In other words, a, a pattern of thinking, a bad attitude that becomes set, something that's very hard to change. You know, a stronghold, that Greek word used in Second Corinthians chapter 10, talks about, you know, uh, weapons of warfare are not carnal or fleshy, normal, uh, but, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And that stronghold word there means uh, like a fort fortress, a castle, and we can end up with a, a fort of thought, if you like, in our mind. This is, I'm, I'm fixed in this way. For example, let's say uh, you have sinned. Well, that's not a hypothetical. You have sinned, so there you go. Join the club. Uh, well, the devil lies because he comes along and says, oh, well, that, that was a shocker. You can't be forgiven for that one. You've gone too far now. Oh, no, that's a pattern of sin. You are. No, you're you're beyond the reaches of grace now. You've used up all your lives. That's, that's it, you know. And, uh, and so that is not true because the Bible says Jesus does forgive us our sins uh, and that we're never too far from the arm of God's salvation and that if we repent, he will forgive us for whatever we've done wrong. But he will create a thought in your mind that if you follow that thought can become a stronghold. There's a battle that can go on in your heart and your mind. If you follow that thought, allow it to stay and build that, oh, no, I'll never be forgiven. It can become set and strong in your mind and you can live with condemnation. And the Bible says there's no condemnation in Christ, but there's plenty in the devil. Uh, and, uh, and you can end up being convinced that you are worthless, that you've gone too far, that you're beyond God's grace, and you can just live with a constant sense of guilt and shame. And that's a stronghold that ha some people have. Uh, and, of course, others have the opposite problem. They, they've got a seared conscience regarding sin. Uh, they don't think they ever do anything wrong. They defend themselves all the time, and they've got another problem. They've got a stronghold of deception saying, I'm fine, I'm okay, I've, I've never done anything wrong. Um, Another stronghold that comes about from his deception that the devil brings lies is that of offence. When people get offended, uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever heard someone say something bad about you, but not directly to you? I guess you have. And this is, this is where the devil will start working. Maybe there's a friend at work that shares to you what somebody apparently said about you. Or in the family, oh, somebody said that you thought that you said or that they said about you. The and, uh, and so at, at that point, if you're smart, you'll go to the original source. And uh, you'll either not bother because you can just forgive them and let it go. But if it gets to you, then you want to find out what they really did say and kind of sort it out. But, but we may not want to do that. Maybe we quickly get too upset. We don't want confrontation. And this is where the devil will say, oh. Oh, yeah, they really did say that. And not only that, they said this, this, and this. And they believe this. And they, they think you're terrible. And, and so he's whispering away, saying, that person's out to get you, that, you know, you're really bad, or they think you're really bad. And he doesn't want you to get to the truth, to, to work it out with that person, to repair the damage in the relationship, to 
said or what's really going on. He wants division. The devil wants disunity. He, he's after disruption in your relationships, in your family, in your workplace, with your friends, in your church family. And so he will try and deceive you into thinking the worst about someone or uh, not wanting to give them the benefit of the doubt or not wanting to confront or deal with the issue. He wants you to take on a feeling of hurt, to take on a sense of offence and just say, well, oh, okay, and, and, and not hear the other side of the story. And, and he'll try and convince you that, uh, you know, it's okay to live with unforgiveness, to, to have a kind of a bitterness in your heart, which is terrible, but somehow attractive to us. <laughs> we kind of feel that we're, we're justified in, in, in that. And, and sadly, some people choose to live like this. They've allowed the devil to deceive them in this way, to live with a stronghold of offense in their heart and their mind. And John Bevere calls this the bait of Satan. He did a whole book and DVD series on it, which you may have read or seen. Um, and and it's, it's bait because the devil never shows you the hook. He deceives you or tempts you. He's got bait and there's a terrible hook behind the bait that people don't realize they just get caught. Uh, and, and John Bevere says that if we retain an offense in our heart, we will filter everything through it. And it'll keep us from seeing any of our own character flaws because we're continually deferring blame to other people. And uh, yeah, that's a big win for the devil. And he can get people in, in God's house, in church life, in families, at the workplace where you've got all your energy and emotional uh, energy spent in workplace politics and upset and sort of getting on with the job. Same with getting on with God's work. People, oh, you know, the personality. You know, and the Bible says iron sharpens iron. We can actually use conflict for a benefit. You can actually have personality differences in your family, in your workplace, in church life, and it can just sharpen you. It can actually be a good thing. You go, oh, well, I'm surprised they said that. Or, that, oh, that's not the way I would have done that. Well, that's, well, that's a different way of doing things. Okay, well, I'll believe the best in them, or I'll learn from that, or God, God makes people differently. Okay, fine. And, and you want to decide, I will not be offended, because you people say, I'm taking offense to that. You are. You're taking it on. It's your decision. And you want to decide, no, I will not take on that offense. I'll forgive. I will love. I'll, I'll spread grace. Yeah? And so that's one of the biggest deceptions. But let me say this. The greatest deception the devil's ever made in people's minds, is to get people to believe that he doesn't even exist. He's happy to be, to be portrayed as that caricature with the pitchfork and the horns and the skinny red body, um, sometimes fat, sometimes skinny, you know, think Bugs Bunny cartoons and that. And, and, uh, and he likes that because people think, oh, that's just a make-believe figure. Meanwhile, he's actually real and ruining people's lives and they have no defense because they don't even know that he's there. And I don't know who to fight against. Now, you've all heard of C.S. Lewis, you know, about the Narnia Chronicles. But he wrote a lot of classics, and one of them was The Screwtape Letters. And maybe you've read them, and it's, it's a fantastic book because they're a series of letters written as a fictional, satirical allegory, I guess. Is that a correct literary term, teachers? Um, so Screwtape is a senior demon and he's writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, a junior devil who's been given an assignment uh, to keep 
this guy, the patient, I think they call him, out of heaven. And all you read are the letters from one source to the other, but you get to fill in the, the picture. And one of the earlier letters that he writes, he's very upset because Wormwood has allowed the patient to become a Christian. And so now he's got to tempt him to try and get him back out of the kingdom of heaven. But, but uh, Screwtape, again, is unimpressed because uh, he would favour a more subtle approach to temptation. Wormwood's going to this obvious, extravagant, wicked sins temptation. And, and, and Screwtape, it's very clever. It's humorous, but it's clever because this is how the devil likes to work. If he appeared tomorrow morning, you know, at the foot of your bed and said, I'm the devil, follow me, let's go to hell. You're going to really probably not be that tempted to pursue what he's offering. But he doesn't do that, does he? And this is what Scrooge says. He says, don't offer these obvious sins that look so wicked. He says, um, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. He's just trying to get him to compromise here or be tempted slightly with that or be deceived into thinking, that's okay, that's not too bad, just a little sin, just a little white lie, just a little bit of this. And uh, it's, it's fascinating. And then he, and then he gets um, onto the Christian uh, and his commitment to church. And the elder demon advises, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighbourhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of churches. Isn't that fascinating? That was written in 1940-something. The, church, the search for a suitable church makes the man a critic, whereas our enemy, that's God, wants him to be a pupil. Mate, what a great mind. Uh, God goes C.S. Lewis and sadly... Things haven't changed, but if we're not careful, we'll become uh, part of the, the culture of the consumer and shop around rather than being planted and faithful and committed and put up with differences and personalities, like I was saying. Now, remember, this guy's being tempted, all going on, but he doesn't even know that it's the devil that's tempting him or deceiving him, and therefore it's all the more effective. But if he can be aware that there's a spiritual war going on, then he'll be in a better position to fight. And those Frank Peretti books that came out in the 90s, I think, uh, a while ago, This Present Darkness, they were, they were good. Uh, you know, I don't know how theologically accurate. You don't want to see a devil behind every problem and, and get all... But it does show that there's a, these were novels written with a parallel of what was going on in the natural world and then showing a spiritual war going on around the, the same situation. Um, and we'll talk more in the coming weeks about how we should fight uh, against the devil. But let's just get to the third point. I'm talking about who the devil is, how he fights against us. I want us just to consider why. Why all this talk about fight? Why bother? Surely it's too much trouble. It sounds exhausting, doesn't it? Sort of worrying. You know, devil's chasing me around. I've got to be strong in God. Put on the arm of God. Why can't I just live a quiet, comfortable life? Because there's more at stake to life than your comfort. Okay? Remember Churchill? Last week I was talking about Winston Churchill. World War II. Imagine if he said, oh, it's just a bit tiring. You know, it's just a bit too much effort. I don't think I'm going to take on this nasty fellow Hitler. It's really, he seems all very organised. Well, that would all be, we'd all be speaking German. 
And that's only the beginning. It'll be a lot worse than that. Actually, it wouldn't be that bad for me because I'm pretty airy and looking. So I might be okay. But some of you, you've got a bit of a suntan and you'd be in big trouble. Um, I, see, I get on a lot of times of flight and they always come and offer me a drink or whatever in German. I have to say, I'm sorry, I'm staying. I understand German. Uh, oh, but, um, or Japanese. No offense to the Japanese, but, you know, they were printing Australian, they, they printed Australian yen. And we said it, we, we, we went into a museum, I threw a motorbike ride, we went into a museum, I went long by something, and they've got examples in this little war museum, and, and, and I've never seen it. And it's like the Japanese have prepared to invade. Uh, and so I'm glad that Churchill, you know, thought, well, it's a bit of rough and tumble, but we're up for it. And, um, again, forgive me for not being able to do a good impersonation of his accent, but instead of saying it's too hard, he stood up before the Houses of Parliament in May 1940, his first speech as Prime Minister, and he uttered these now famous words. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask... You've got it. You've got it at least a minute. What is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. And so he was ready for a fight. And he knew what they were fighting for. He knew the cost of defeat and he knew the need for victory. He was aware of how important it was for them to be strong. He goes on in the same speech. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Let that be realised, no survival for the British Empire, no survival for all that the British Empire has stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. All this time I feel entitled to claim the aid of all, and I say, come then. Let us go forward together with our united strength. What an orator. And, you know, you can read his other speeches that carry that same resounding sense of purpose. A few weeks later, he promised to fight them on the beaches, to never surrender. A few weeks after that, he spoke about their finest hour. And similarly, we are in a war that has more at stake than just your survival, or my survival, or our enjoyment of life. We are to fight to see God's purposes fulfilled, to see people saved from sin and death, people who are precious to God and who need us to fight the good fight of faith. I'm just reading a book called The Mission, The Men and Me. As I said, I've got resources about real army situations recommended to me by Hudson. This is a former Delta Force commander who wrote this book. Labor. Now, Delta Force, as you may know, is the top counter-terrorist unit in the U.S. military. This guy's been involved in Iraq, Somalia, Bosnia, Afghanistan, the search for Osama bin Laden. Osama bin Laden. Um, 
And it tells the story in a, of being caught in a very difficult situation in Iraq. You've got a small team of men that infiltrated Saddam Hussein's hometown and now they were taking fire. And they weren't really there to take over the town. They were just infiltrating. Uh, and it looked like they'd have to withdraw. But he gets a call on the radio from his boss saying, press on. And he tries to explain the situation uh, and how he was going to jeopardise the lives of his men and ultimately their mission if they pressed on and he was wanting to withdraw. And yet someone above him, the general in the chain of command above him, didn't seem to appreciate how things were on the ground. He was looking at a computer screen and just seeing lights, thinking, well, just keep moving forward. Meanwhile, he's got a guy in a tank saying, in very cool military language, I'm going to die. But he wasn't saying like that, just, uh, you know, heading fire at 3 o'clock, getting you know, more severe. And he knows that this is, you know, cool talk, but basically he's got to save the lives of the men. And he knows that the mission would be compromised if he doesn't withdraw. So he's told on the radio that his future as a commander could be affected if he disobeys the general's orders. And so he's got a decision to make. And then he says at that point in the book, at that point I remembered the three M's. The mission, the men, and me. And it's something that a Vietnam vet commander that he had had before taught him many years ago. He writes this. This veteran commander had told me the three M's are the, key, excuse me, the keys to being successful in life. They stand for the mission, the men, and me. They're all connected. If you neglect one, you'll wreck the others. He didn't use the word wreck. It was a little more colourful. I'm just paraphrasing. The first M stands for the mission, your purpose. Whether it's your personal or professional life, make sure you understand it and use it to guide all your decisions. The second M stands for the men. You must care for the welfare of your troops. The third M stands for me. Me comes last for a reason. You have to take care of yourself, but only after you have taken care of the mission and the men. Never put your own personal well-being or advancement ahead of the accomplishment of your mission or taking care of your men. And so that was his guiding principle in life and in the battlefield. And at that point, he did what he believed was the right thing. He pulled his men back from engagement. They were able to complete their mission. They didn't lose anyone. And he slept well with a clear conscience, even though he knew that it might jeopardize his career. And he ended up being recognized for making the right decision and was well promoted. But it's the same for us. Can you see the parallel? There are things in life that are bigger than our comforts, than our self-preservation. Because we've all been given a mission in life. To follow, to serve, to obey God, to fight in his army. That's our mission. And then we have men or, or women around us, people who the Bible says we are to honor above ourselves. Souls for whom we are fighting for, people that we have been put in, who have been put in our life to care for, to pray for, to reach out, to give to, to lead, to disciple. And then there's me or, or you, and, and we'll be happy soldiers when we, when we remember what we're fighting for. And then let me finish with one last quote uh, relating to how long the war is going to go, and how long will our struggles continue. Uh, I was given many years ago this amazing series of books by William Gurnell. He was a Puritan author of a book called The Christian in Complete Armour, wrote it in the 1600s. And that's a classic. He spent much of his life writing these three volumes uh, all about 
the armor and the war and the Christians are involved with. He said, the length of a man's combat with Satan, actually, I'll just give you a little aside. When I wrote this down and I was rereading it this morning, I'd missed an A. And uh, it, right, it, it said something about wars with Stan. Uh, uh, but it was that simple, poor Stan, you know. But I needed to put the A back in to uh, realise that it's, we're not fighting against Stan. Uh, I read it, you know, I was reading it. I'm going, oh, that piece is sort of well like that. We must fight against Stan. Um, right, so anyway, here's his quote. The Christian, uh, the, the length of a man's combat with Satan measures the same as the length of his life. And once he becomes a saint, the struggle increases. From your spiritual birth to your natural death, from the hour you first set your face toward heaven until you set your foot inside the gate, you will have wars with Satan, sin, and self. That's encouraged. But let me finish with one more quote, and this is the words of Jesus, John 16, 33, you may know. He said, in this world you will have trouble, but... Take heart, for I have overcome the world. In other words, don't worry. Just keep fighting. Victory is assured if we don't give up. We fight according to God's rules of engagement. Amen? All right. We hope you enjoyed this message and feel challenged and encouraged. Please let others know about our podcast so they too can learn and live their best life. You can find out more about our church and ministries at c3cc.org.au. See you next time. God bless.